0: intimidating that I'm a little on the short side. <laughs> Aren't we all compared to Ricky, a man of great stature? Thank you for your leading the singing and our sister for the accompaniment. I, I, I enjoy singing. I did not when I was young, but I certainly do now. And as I've often said, I, I feel like a third-rate clarinetist who is being allowed to sit in with the, the Philharmonic Symphony when I get to sing along. I'm going to continue speaking about the letter to the Hebrews, again considered to be meat for mature believers, and yet it's a wonderful message for even the newest believer in Christ. There are some things in it that are very difficult to understand, but as I mentioned this morning, it, as we're told in Proverbs 25 to it is the glory of the Lord to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search it out. And when we find those things which are difficult, which perplex us in scripture, if we're persistent in seeking the answer, the blessings are immense. Uh, by way of a, a quick recap, you know, we, we mentioned that the letter to the Hebrews is a, uh, the climax, we'll say, of a trilogy of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. They'd, all three of these books um, quote that little verse from Habakkuk, as the, as the Jews would say, or something similar to that, that little prophet. Three, three small chapters in that one verse, as I mentioned this morning. When you look at that book, it almost seems out of place. And yet, we have three books in the New Testament that provide commentary on that verse, and it is the linchpin of salvation. It defines every person on the face of the earth. That verse which says, As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but my righteous one shall live by his faith. Or as Paul quotes it, the just shall live by faith. And it gives a description of every human on the face of the earth and what their eternal destination is gonna be based on whether they're full of pride or whether they have faith. If they have the pride of their works and their associations and their their birthright, whatever it might be, they're lost. If they have simple faith and throwing themselves completely on the mercy of the loving God through faith accepting this gift of life, then they shall live. Uh, That trilogy, uh, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, I mentioned a a little illustration that I thought might enlighten us, so to speak, by talking about a lighthouse, Romans being this lighthouse which gives us the light of salvation to guide us safely into harbor and it points out all the, the dangerous reefs and the other wrecks and all those things that are just seeking to destroy us. That light also reveals that that course into the harbor isn't difficult, it's impossible without the light. Galatians reminds us that having been guided safely into the harbor, it is the light which brought us in. We couldn't have made it without the light of the gospel. And then Hebrews reminds us, okay, we're safe in harbor, we need to be about the master's business. Romans defines for us who are the just and who are the unjust. It's that legal document that defines the relationship between man and God. Galatians is uh, just, again, a reminder that it is not of any works that we do. No thing that we do affords us salvation, short of believing in God. As Genesis chapter 15 tells us, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And it was before the law, before he'd, he hadn't been doing things to earn his salvation and he had it. Um, Hebrews is the one that talks about living by faith. And again, this is written to believers. We discussed that at length this morning. Um, It was talking about uh, literal interpretation. And uh, there's nothing wrong with reading between the lines, but we should never let what we think we read between the lines control or prevent us from receiving the primary message of the passage. Unless the passage demands it, we should uh, take it literally. Uh, in this book, the Old Testament writer, um, I mean, the, 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 the writer uses Old Testament truths to make his, his arguments. Really doesn't rely on anything out of the New Testament or any apostolic authority. He knows who his audience is, it's the Jews, and he's writing to them, quoting Old Testament passages. Clearly he talks about Jesus as being the Messiah, but it is the Messiah of the Old Testament, and he quotes scripture to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. Why is it that we as believers sometimes want to shy away from a literal understanding of scripture? I guess it's because uh, we tend not to like where it might lead us sometimes. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, "Uh, the Bible is easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obligated to act accordingly. William Macdonald said, uh, in his book, True Discipleship, he said, clever theologians can give you a thousand reasons why it does not mean what it says, but simple disciples drink it down eagerly, assuming the Lord knows what he was talking about. We looked this morning at the passages out of Hebrews chapter one and chapter two and one verse out of chapter three, and we looked at the surpassing majesty in humility Sometimes it seems this dichotomy, his majesty and his humility, his lowliness and his exaltation, his deity and his human incarnation, his death and our life, his temptation and his faithfulness, his submission or he was subjected, he was made a little lower than the angels, subjected himself to the frailties of human flesh, and now we see that all things are subjected to him Simply put, uh, Hebrews uh, gives us this glorious person and work of Christ and it puts it on display for us to see and then contrasts that with the potential for slothful, disobedient, or even rebellious behavior. And the picture, you know, we have this loving father. He's not trying to trip us up or to make us depressed, he's trying to bring many sons to glory, as we're told in uh, the second chapter of Hebrews. Well, uh, talking about that um, uh, this morning, I talked about running the race well, and uh, let's go back and look at what you know. Nate Nate Bramson made this a the foundation for his book. What if Jesus meant what he said? And out of uh, Matthew chapter 16, let's let's read a, a couple of verses there. Though we're studying the book of Hebrews, I, I don't know if we'll read anything out of Hebrews tonight. But again, the, the point is to develop this overall understanding of the, the letter to the Hebrews, how it fits in uh, to this redemptive plan which God has set in place to redeem all of mankind and why it is important for, for believers. In Matthew chapter 16, Starting with uh, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, you know, preface this with, with what had just happened. He's, he's just been telling the disciples about his death, and Peter takes him aside and says, This isn't going to happen. And Jesus tells him, Get thee behind me, Satan. You know, uh, you're not setting your, your mind on God's interests, but man's. And again, that really is the problem of, of Hebrews. So in verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the, in the glory of his Father, with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. You know, um, we we like to write those passages out and and make them, force them to fit just unbelievers. But he's talking here about disciples, if you want to follow me. This is a challenge as Nate Bramson so clearly uh, illuminates in his book. And we have a decision as believers, are we going to follow or are we just going to enjoy the ride now to heaven? We think I've got my get out of hell card. I'm I'm good. I'm good to go. We're all the same, right? We're all saved. Well, we all are in Christ, but Scripture makes it clear that there are rewards which we can lose. And our loving Father wants to reward us at the finish line. He is that loving Father who is cheering us on. Run that race. Run that race. Come on, pick it up. Quit being slothful. You know, I told that story. I like that story because I like the, the main character. Maybe I like him too much. The race I ran where I ran that entire 26 miles at a, well, not the entire, I ran 20 miles of that race at a very leisurely pace with a friend. And then I began to realize what a poor job I was doing as I could see we were, hey, we're headed back towards the stadium. I wonder how far it is. And I didn't end up sprinting, but I could have done so much better. Uh, Like I said this morning, I'm happy. I'm thrilled that I I ran it and I finished the race. I did fairly well, but I, I could have done so much better. That's a minor, inconsequential regret. What kind of regret might we have if we enter into the gates of heaven? We sing that one song. Must I go in empty-handed? Will I go without anything to offer before my Lord? Will I have done nothing to further the kingdom, to bring glory? Have I done anything to mimic Christ when He says, I bore witness of you in the midst of my brethren? Speaking about bearing witness of the Father. And those are the things we want to encourage. And I said, I'm challenged by what I see going on here with the depth of maturity, the dedication to service, the selfless hours given to minister unto the little children especially. I am so touched by that. First off, I am so inadequate in dealing with children. And I look at that and say, this is a glorious thing. And the Lord has been rewarding the faithfulness of the saints here. So whatever you're hearing me say, this isn't a rebuke that I think we need to step up the pace. The truth is every one of us could do better, right? And that's, that's, that's the truth. And if I point the finger and say you're not, not doing your share, you'd say, look, Russ, you've got three fingers pointing right back at yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty, too. This is a challenging passage. If you want, if you want to challenge, read Nate's book. Very challenging. Let's go over to Philippians and read a little bit out of uh, Philippians. Very familiar passage. We, we read this quite often in the worship service. And again, in this picture uh, of the Christ and his humility. Again, mirroring what is written in uh, in Hebrews, in, starting in Philippians chapter two, verse five, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Uh, you know uh, in in battle, um, particularly on uh, in um, small unit actions involving groups like the, the teams. Uh, it's not that you go in, uh, if you're fighting in uniform, not wearing a uniform, but it's very common for the officers to take and wear subdued um, insignia. I don't want to be uh, picked off or have somebody say, this is one of the officers, but more than that, on the teams when going in uh, on a, on a, a mission, they take turns. Sometimes even the youngest guy on the squad will be the, the mission leader. And what this officer does, he doesn't give up his rights, but he sets them aside and becomes as one of the enlisted men. If there's decisions need to be made uh, outside the normal profile of the mission, he's gonna step up and do what needs to be done. Here, Christ has set aside his glory not that it's not available to him. He's willingly putting it aside because this is necessary, again, for, the, the, for this captain of our salvation to be made perfect for us. He's already perfect, but he's demonstrating for us what true love means in self-sacrifice and providing this example. He's showing us what this attitude is that we're told we're commanded. Have this attitude in yourselves. Christ has humbled himself, and because he humbled himself, he has been exalted above all others. If we humble ourselves and lend ourselves to the work of the Lord, one day he's going to exalt us. Again, we're never going to attain, again, to, the, uh, to deity, but we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be with him. And, again, do we want to go into heaven saying, must I go in empty-handed? Of course Not. That's why we want to cheer one another on. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, it doesn't say work for it. It's work it out. It's already in us. Let's let that work out. Let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all these things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. This is a dark and dying world. And if we're off course, and if we're Drifting away if we're neglecting salvation if we're refusing to go on to maturity How are we going to be a light to the world as I said this morning? That's the importance of this message in Hebrew Is to respond to every warning that is given in order that we might be? The most mature we can be and the most ready to demonstrate not only obedience but having Buried within our heart the Word of God so that at any moment the Spirit can draw it out as we meet with somebody and apply it as needed. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now again, Paul's writing to believers here. it's, um, It's evident that there is something to be lost. In this case, Paul's even saying, you know, I'll lose my right to glory and if you don't end up finishing the race well when you get to heaven. Again, he's the one who's given us the warnings in 1 Corinthians 3 that our works are going to be tested by fire. And Again, my last time I, I talked here, I talked about what God has done with our sin. How He's cast it behind his back. As far as the east is from the west, he's, he's buried it in the deepest sea. And as Dave likes to point out, he then put up a sign, no fishing allowed. I mean, our sin's gone. That is is not what is at issue here. It is the works of a believer. What have we done for the kingdom of Christ since coming to salvation? Jumping over to um, Philippians chapter 3. beginning with the first uh, first verse, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, again, those first-century Jews were being persecuted. And it was for the sake of their flesh, protecting, physically protecting their flesh, they were thinking about going back into Judaism just so they wouldn't be persecuted. Paul here saying, put no confidence in the flesh. It, it's going to die anyways. As I've mentioned before, it's, it's, it's by the hand of God, I'm here Today. I should have been dead a long time ago. I had one doctor tell me I was in really good shape for a dead man. Um, And at times, the way I was living my life, I might as well have been a dead man. And God does determine our days, but as David would tell him, Oh, Lord, teach us to number our days. And don't wait like I did till the 20th mile to pick up the pace to finish a marathon. You young ones, you new ones in Christ... You stay in the race from the beginning. Don't turn off to the side like I've done. God can restore the years that the locust has eaten, but that's, that's, that's a phrase that, that you want to be found faithful in Christ when you leave this planet. But it's far better if you're faithful the entire time. Now, trust me, life in the world is not worth it. The regrets far outweigh any momentary fleeting moments of pleasure. The sin is pleasurable, that's why scripture tells us that, but it's fleeting and it brings forth death. You know, this entire passage here in the third chapter of Philippians is all about reaching the, the goal of life. And you know, Paul goes on to talk about um, if it was just on flesh, he was more qualified than most being the the Pharisee he was. I like, let's jump down to um, verse, uh, uh, verse 10. You know, he's seeking, I, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And our brother shared from Colossians 3 this morning that we have died and we're hidden with Christ in God. And I'm, we're going to go to Colossians 3 next. But being conformed to his death, we have died with Christ if we're in Christ. And we are raised and resurrected. It's, as Romans 8 verse 30 says, if we've been justified, we've also already been glorified. God sees us in heaven already. He says, I want to be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, he's already got his salvation. This is getting a little deeper. Again, he, he wants the full experience Of resurrection and living his life now even in this earthly body but living in a manner which demonstrates that he's committed to Christ and taking on those Christly attitudes and those Christly attributes and those Christly actions he says not that I've already obtained it again he's not in his glorified body yet he's still here on earth not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You know, as I mentioned this morning, if we're in Christ, we're running the same race. We have the same starting point at the cross and we have the same finish line at heaven. But our paths might be different in between. What has Christ laid hold of you for? For what purpose here on earth? Well, I can guarantee you that it's, again, as we mentioned this morning, one of the things he's laid hold of us for is to um, seek to provoke one another unto love and good deeds, to encourage the challenge as necessary, to confront with what purpose that we may run the race better that we're looking out with love for our brothers and sisters around us. Jumping down to verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, this so beautifully dovetails in with the picture we have of Christ in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, and also this promise that if we're in Christ, when he is revealed in glory, we will be revealed in glory with him. So let's go over to Colossians 3, where we have that passage. Again, our, our brother... Uh, read from this this morning. It, it, it's a beautiful passage. This in conjunction also with Ephesians, where we're, we're told we're seated in the heavenlies. Here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The image of Christ who, as we read in Hebrews, is the exact representation of the Father. Verse 12, he says, so, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He sums it all up, really, in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now this entire passage is encouraging us uh, again, to uh, seek this, this living the new life, the new creature. But the warnings are sent, sent out because it's possible for a believer to do all these things. Some of us have done some of those. I'm not going to share with you where I've gone off the rails, but we've all made mistakes one place or the other. The warning goes out because this is a real possibility for a believer who will waste their life But as Paul would say, uh, to the the writer to the Hebrews would say in chapter six, we're convinced of better things for you, brothers and sisters. Again, I'm not giving this message out because I see a need for someone here to be rebuked. On the other, Uh, no, it's completely the other way around. We wanna do these things because having this knowledge equips us not only to live our own life, but to, again, to teach to mentor, to disciple others, to encourage. And you know, our brother shared from um, Exodus 33 this morning uh, about manna from heaven and this beautiful picture of Christ, uh, the bread of life. You know, in that, earlier in that chapter, Moses says to God, this is, you know, after the uh, the terrible ordeal where he's broken the tablets and the great sin had fallen upon the camp and um, God tells him, you just take these people and go, because if I go with you, I'll slay them, they're so wicked. And Moses begs him, no, no, Lord, I don't want to go if you're not going to go with us. He says, let me know you, let me know your ways, rather, in order that I might know you. Why? Because he wanted to follow God appropriately, and he wanted to be equipped to lead his people. It's a touching passage each time Moses goes to bat for the Israelites who oftentimes are seeking to stone him. And it's this beautiful picture of God leading Moses along and growing him and then Moses leading the Israelites and growing them in spite of all the failures. It's this loving God who seeks to see us victorious in all that we do You know, I said that the letter to the Hebrews was written to these believers. Of course, it does lend itself to the lost. The arguments in Hebrews about salvation, about the putting away of sin, um, the majesty of, of Christ and, and that He died once for all. There, there's a lot of beautiful passages in there we use all the time. I use them quite often when I'm ministering to, to the lost. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It's appointed unto man once to die. You know, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The passage is written to believers, but it's a perfect passage to also to apply to unbelievers. It's much like Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, it, In those warning passages in Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus is talking to his church. Now, granted, particularly that one, Laodicea, is pretty much withered up and naked and blind. But the picture is there are believers there, and he's counseling them to buy gold and to uh, get some white clothing, some good works. But that again, that's a perfect passage to use for reaching out to the lost as well. Jesus wants to... um, sup with every human being on the face of the earth this is good and well pleasing to god our savior who wills all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth at the rate i'm going yeah we're not going to read anything out of hebrews tonight again the book of hebrews calls the first century believing jews out of their traditional judaism uh, they've already been saved out of it, but they're beginning to want to slip back into it because of the persecution uh, they're under. Um, and Hebrews gives us this—this this, again, this um, this capstone to this trilogy of the just shall live by faith. But the entire thing is this this um, picture of redemption. I, I I love the way that W. A. Criswell put it together in you know a sermon in a a book that he put out called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption, and it runs from Genesis to the book of the Revelation, you know, as we're told in Psalms and also in Hebrews. Lo, in the whole of the scroll it is written in me, Messiah says. This is all about our relationship with God. But this book is trying to call these first century Jews uh, to account. Are you gonna turn your back on the living God and go back to dead ways? You know, I'm reminded of uh, when you see new construction, they'll, they'll put a fence around it and they'll start doing the preparation, but they'll always put up this, this big, like a billboard thing and somewhere on there, there's gonna be an illustration of a building that's gonna be put up. And that illustration provides sort of a picture of what it's gonna be and you look at it, hey, that looks pretty cool. But as soon as that building is up, that illustration comes down. It's worthless compared to the structure and the glory of the the structure that is there. That's similar to what these Jews are wanting to do. They're wanting to go back into the old symbols that have been done away with. All the rituals and symbols of temple worship pointed to Messiah, but now that Messiah had come, those symbols just still just point to him. The rituals of temple worship never saved anybody, never saved a single person, not even keeping them religiously. Paul would say as much about him being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Jesus said, all those Pharisees that are keeping the law, they're lost, woe unto them. No, again, it's believing in God, in Hebrews, calling to account. Those symbols, those rituals, they're relegated to being teaching aids, and that is it. I often think about these symbols and these things of, of religion that we cling to. Symbols are worthless other than pointing you towards the real thing. A symbol is never as valid, as deep, as meaningful, as real as the real thing. That's why it's astounding when somebody says, oh, hell in the Bible is just a symbol. Wow. Wow. If the hell of the Bible is just a symbol, how bad is it really then? Because the real thing is always worse than a symbol. And the, the lake of fire that's pictured in the Bible is a horrifying thing. Again, it ought to bring tears to our eyes as we think of anybody going there. A symbol, it'd be like, imagine this, you you, you make a drawing of a hundred dollar bill, and you take that hundred dollar bill and you try to purchase something with it. You're probably gonna have a meeting with the Secret Service real quick, and you're gonna be incarcerated probably for a long time. But the truth is, you have an infinitely greater chance of successfully completing a purchase with that drawing of a hundred dollar bill than you do of getting into heaven. By being a member of a church, by being baptized, by taking communion, by singing in church or giving money. Those are all good things. I'm not against any of those. But we know, according to Scripture, if we rely on those sort of things, they're all counterfeit. God doesn't accept anything that's counterfeit. And trust me, the incarceration time for that type of counterfeiting... Well, it's all eternity. John Lawrence, uh, a dear brother who has uh, done some amazing work, wrote, wrote a, a lengthy piece on the five warnings of, of Hebrews. And uh, later on, I've got some stuff where I'm drawing on it. But he, he made this observation. Today, we're living in a period of time like the days of Noah when there is no fear of God before men's eyes. I'm quoting Romans 3.18. The unsaved know the judgment of God is upon those who do such things as they do today, yet they not only do them, but they have pleasure in them that do them. Romans 1.32. They are treasuring up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgments of God. Romans two verse five. But he goes on to say this. It can be even worse than this if, if, if such could be the case. And it is that the saved have no fear of God before their eyes. You do not love somebody you do not respect, he says. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said, why do you say you love me, but you don't keep my commandments? If he gives a commandment and we don't do them, we're showing disrespect. I can tell you in the military, you you get an order and you disrespect it. You refuse to do it. There are consequences. And, and I was just a visitor. There were things which I signed and which I was a part of that uh, I was warned. If you share this, um, we have a place for you at Leavenworth. Not in the military disciplinary barracks, in the federal penitentiary. And I think it's even worse. You know, the early church, uh, they had a good and godly fear and awe of the living God. And they were obedient and the Lord did amazing things through them. We can think of what we're told in, in Acts 2.42 that they uh, continually devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, uh, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It goes on to say, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. They kept that awe, that godly fear, and the Lord did amazing things through them. A couple chapters later, in in chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira. They're struck dead. You know, Scripture doesn't come right out and say it, but I, I suspect they were believers because otherwise God wouldn't have been so harsh with them. But we're told that immediately... Fear fell upon the whole church. So that's all the believers. But it doesn't end there. It says, and fear fell upon the whole church and all who heard. People walk circumspectly because of what they saw the hand of the Lord doing. The result of that type of behavior is a healthy and productive church. Again, as I mentioned this morning, I think there's a reason that the Lord has been blessing us with the opportunities that have been given to us. Several years ago, we were talking about evangelism and one of the questions was, boy, if we catch the fish, who's gonna clean them? We're gonna need somebody that can disciple, that can mentor, that can teach. That's the obligation and responsibility. Again, that the Lord would send to us little lambs that belong to other flocks of other believing churches. It's because he trusts us. And we, we wanna maintain that, we wanna be faithful. These lambs don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord God. And if the great shepherd wants them here, he'll send them. So he sent them, and we feed them, and we're laying up treasures in heaven because of that. Well, I'm just going to uh, name off the, um, the five warnings. Some people would call that they're six. They would look at the first couple verses of uh, the twelfth chapter about running the race with endurance and and say there's a warning there. We're going to stick with the five. And um, you know, it's generally held that there's these five warnings and John Lawrence calls them the five flashing red lights on the road of disobedience or the the five stop signs on the freeway of backsliding and it's there to prevent the the church from slipping into folly. You know, God remains consistent in His dealings with mankind, uh, and um, these warnings fit the perfect pattern of what the Israelites did coming out of Egypt, going through uh, the wilderness. uh, Once they were in the land, Um, at the time Messiah came, and one of the warnings seems to apply perfectly to what we've been told the prophets have told us will occur during the time of the Tribulation, when two-thirds of the Jewish nation will be slaughtered. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we're warned about the dangers of drifting, and we're, we're asked, you know, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You can only neglect something that you already possess. You can reject something, but if you're going to neglect it, it's... Latent in that statement is, you've already got this. The children of Israel, who were redeemed by the blood and by the power, drifted from the truth that Mount Sinai made a golden calf, and it cost the life, the physical life of 3,000 Israelites that day. They had witnessed the mighty works of God, and yet so quickly they drifted away from the truth. Uh, The second warning is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and it extends all the way to the fourth chapter 2, the 13th verse, and it's the danger of not entering into rest. After leaving Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel, they wandered 40 years in the desert. They had to take another lap because they were unbelieving. They had seen the miracles of God, but they didn't trust Him enough to enter into the nation and You know, over a million of them dropped in the desert. The danger of not going on to maturity and widely considered to be a portion of this to be the most difficult passage in the Bible, the opening verses of the sixth chapter. But starting with uh, Hebrews 5, verse 11 and going through the 20th verse of the sixth chapter, it talks about this idea of not going on to maturity. Again, oh, I got my get out of hell card. I don't need anything else. I don't need the Word of God. I don't need to to understand God's ways so that I can know Him. I I don't need any of this. And this was the state of the nation of Israel after entering into Canaan during the time of the judges, the kings, and the prophets. Um, They never grew up as a nation. They, They were seldom able to use the Word of God in their lives. They were seldom applied it to life situations. And the result was that thousands and thousands and thousands died during the the sieges and conflicts, particularly when the Assyrians came in and then later the Babylonians. There were moments when they would return to the Lord and when they would use the word of God and great and wonderful things would happen. But as a whole, they refused to go on to maturity the fourth warning is the danger of willful sin, Hebrews chapter 10. And it it's a picture of the, of the nation of Israel at the time of Christ. They kept sinning willfully, utterly rejecting the one as they've watched him perform these miracles and meet all of the requirements of the prophecy of scripture. Jesus even told them a parable of, Uh, the vineyard where a wonderful vineyard is given to tenants that are to keep it and to pay the master but when he sends his servants and even a son who they kill reject him. There's a picture of the nation of Israel they utterly reject their Messiah. and He tells them the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world shall be required of this generation. He tells them that in Luke 50. You know, when Jesus stood before Pilate, uh, would the Jews cry out, his blood be upon us and on our children. And it was in 70 AD. The destruction kills well over a million Jews. Josephus gives a very explicit account of all that took place. The wonderful, beautiful thing is, is that he also tells us no Christians died. They had listened to the word of Christ in, in Luke 21, um, where he tells them, when you see the city surrounded by armies, you've got to flee. And when they saw that, you know, the letter that I was going to say, the letter that Paul wrote to the Hebrews, they were paying attention, and this turned them back from their folly and they remembered the words of Christ. Now that's different than the Olivet Discourse, although it normally gets lumped in, because then he says, talking about the end times, before these things, and he's telling the people, this is at the temple, the disciples that are there, but so are all the other people. He's telling many. He says, when you see this city surrounded by armies, you flee, and so they avoided it. They went to the Decapolis, and, and the Christians did not perish because They believed the words of Christ. Final one is the the danger of indifference. We might think, how bad is that? It's found in Hebrews chapter 12, and yet um, this is a picture of the sin of the nation of Israel during the time of the tribulation. They could care less about spiritual matters. It's a picture of someone whose conscience has been seared or is dead, totally no thoughts whatsoever about spiritual matters. And that is the most dangerous position to be in. When we're out preaching on the street and somebody gets angry with us and starts yelling and screaming, maybe we have a try to have a discussion, I'm not near as worried about that person as I am as the person who, they could they could just care less. Because without a conscience, you can't recognize what's wrong and fix it. As long as you have a conscience, you can be guided back to the truth. Well, The whole book of Hebrews written to believers, yet a strong word for the unbelievers as well. And I wanna finish the message again with this thought. If you don't know where you're going when you die, it's not safe to die. You can be one of the believers that maybe is being challenged to run a good race, but if you're not in the race, there's no hope for you. I don't care how good a person you are, where you go to church, how you were raised, whether you were baptized. Again, if you have never gotten to the point where you admitted to God, I'm a sinner, I have no hope, I need a Savior, you love me enough, you sent your Son to die for me, to shed His blood on the cross, to pay that debt that I owe. What an amazing love you've poured out to me, God. I don't deserve it, but if you want to forgive me, I'll... I'll accept it because I believe you raised your son to prove you can give the life that you want to give me. And if you can say that to the living God, at that moment you become a believer in part and parcel to all the promises of God. I know I'm going to heaven and it's not because of anything I, I see, feel, or have in my own possession. It's not, as Jay would say, I don't have a warehouse full of good works that are gonna avail me anything. I know I'm going to heaven because God has made the promise. Again, if you you have any questions about those issues, you want to talk about some of these things, Lord willing, in the future, I'll actually get into studying Hebrews itself. Again, the the idea this was a picture to um, bring the book into focus with the rest of scripture and to fit it in, I think, where it does belong. Its primary interpretation is to encourage us believers. we're not in a race against each other we're in a race against ourselves like i said this morning how you run the race i'm praying for you father we love you uh, and we pray that our love would always be manifested in obedience and uh, that it would be a a picture of our respect for you and and uh, and a fear which is based on Awe oh, It's your majesty, your glorious being, your, your loving kindness, your long suffering, your mercy, your grace, all these things that you've poured out to us that we don't deserve. And all you ask is that we believe you. And again, as we said this morning, Lord, we do believe, but help those areas in our lives where we're still beset with unbelief Help us to run the race in a way which brings glory to your name and to the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you would impart us with blessings tonight and call your word to our memory and to our minds and stir it in our hearts that we might be guided as we walk this coming week, that all we do and say, again, would give glory to your name and reflect your glory into this dark and dying world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior, amen.